Well, I want to welcome everybody. Uh, I am Peter Russo. I am the Director of Congressional Affairs at the Cato Institute, and I want to thank you all for coming. This is a very wide room, so I have to really turn my neck to see everybody, but uh, you are at a Capitol Hill briefing entitled A Modern Plague, How the Federal Government Should Address the Opioid Crisis. Um, if you're watching via our live stream and would like to join the conversation, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, please tweet comments and questions to us at hashtag Cato events. Uh, we will be accepting questions from the audience that way too. So if you want to just tweet us, uh, we have someone monitoring that feed. Um, further, this spring, the Cato Institute released the eighth edition of the Cato Handbook for Policymakers. Uh, there were copies available on the table as you came in, and if you'd like more, uh, please contact me after the program. Uh, meanwhile, fully searchable PDFs are available at Cato.org. And while there's no chapter dealing specifically with opioids, uh, there are at least six chapters dealing with all aspects of healthcare, as well as Medicaid and Medicare. So I invite you to explore those. Um, so the news of rising opioid-related deaths is inescapable in today's media landscape. Um, according to the latest official statistics, opioids, including heroin and prescription versions of the drug, killed more than 33,000 people in the U.S. in 2015, uh, with those numbers expected to increase. Uh, a few states have even declared health emergencies in an attempt to get a handle on the, on the problem, and policymakers are engaged at all levels of government in finding solutions. And apart from the wild-eyed fear-mongering, there's been some very thoughtful analysis on the issue, and everyone agrees that it is a naughty and complicated problem with many interesting facets and angles from which to examine it. Uh, young versus old, rural versus urban, doctor-prescribed opioids versus black market heroin peddlers. Further, there are limitations to what we can prescribe in just 60 minutes. Uh, but I want to get a conversation started about how we can meaningfully address this problem in a way that is compassionate as well as friendly to both liberty and justice. Uh, these are two values that often get thrown out when issues like this one are, is so often marked by hysteria and fear. It's always time to be thoughtful and to carefully consider the implications when contemplating government-driven solutions. Um, with that, I want to introduce Jeffrey A. Singer, who is an adjunct scholar at Cato and general surgeon in private practice in Phoenix, Arizona. He was in integrally involved in the creation and passage of the Arizona Healthcare Freedom Act and serves as treasurer of the U.S. Health Freedom Coalition, which promotes state constitutional protections of freedom and choice in healthcare decisions. He writes and speaks extensively on regional and national public policy with a specific focus on the areas of healthcare policy and the harmful effects of drug prohibition. He received his MD from New York Medical College and he is a fellow of the American College of Surgeons. For the next month or so, he'll retain the title of adjunct scholar, but has been made a senior fellow beginning August 1st. Joining an already formidable team in Michaels, Cannon, and Tanner, Dr. Singer will provide significant firepower to our healthcare policy team. So we're very pleased he can join us both today and at Cato. And he'll be followed by the equally formidable Adam Bates with the beard, uh, a policy analyst with Cato's project on criminal justice. His research interests include constitutional law, uh, the war on drugs, the war on terror, police militarization, and overcriminalization. Uh, he received his MA in Middle Eastern Studies and a JD from the University of Michigan, and he is a member of the Oklahoma Bar. So glad both of them could join us today. Uh, let's get this underway. I want to leave time for Q&A at the end, starting at about quarter till, but let's welcome Jeffrey Singer. Thank you. Thank you. I was told you had to have a beard to be on the panel, but I wasn't given enough notice, so this is the best I could do. Um, uh, I, I also want to take issue with Peter's uh, title for today's talk, calling it a plague, because just like we hear the term epidemic loosely thrown around, uh, I, I don't like to use the word epidemic either when it comes to the opioid 
uh, problem because the medical definition of epidemic is a contagious disease that rapidly spreads through a population. And in my more than 30 years of medical practice, I've shaken hands with opioid addicts, I've treated them, I've actually been inside their abdominal cavities, and I have not caught opioid addiction. So I really don't like to use that term, and we use that term epidemic with a lot of things, but it tends to create a, a, an air of hysteria, which could lead to uh, too hasty decision-making, too, too, too hasty decisions when you're dealing with a complex issue. So I prefer to just call it a very serious problem, which it is. Uh, a lot of people really don't uh, know a lot of the science about opioids in the policy world, and I think it's important that uh, we, st we start lay the groundwork for that. So first of all, it's important to understand that the long-term use of opioids, unlike alcohol, really doesn't have a lot of deleterious effects on the body. That's why we maintain methadone maintenance people, for example, sometimes on their whole, for their whole lives on methadone. Or certainly, we have no problems keeping them on methadone for long periods of time. Long-term use of opioids, of course, we know can cause slowing of the bowel, constipation, also lowers your testosterone and estrogen levels, which indirectly can affect your bone, your bone mineralization. But that's, that's, those are problems that could be fixed. Um, there have been studies seeing whether or not it affects your cognitive abilities, and so far there's no conclusive evidence that long-term use of opioids has any effect on, on cognitive faculties or on the brain itself. Um, another thing I want to clear up is these misconceptions about heroin. Heroin was, is a brand name. The, it's, the chemical name is diacetylmorphine. Its generic name is diamorphine. It was invented by Bayer in the late 1800s and given the brand name of heroin, which is a derivation, I don't know German, but it has something to do with strength. Has to, if anybody knows German, they may know what I'm talking about. Um, and uh, it, it's still on the formulary and used by doctors in pain patients in a lot of developed nations, including the UK, Canada, and others. It's called diamorphine. It's not called heroin. So, in fact, I have a colleague who is from one of those nations, and he wasn't aware that when he was prescribing diamorphine for his patients there that he was prescribing heroin because most people don't use that word. It's, uh, it was banned in this country in 1924 because the head of the Narcotics Bureau at the time was convinced that it corrupted moral character. And despite appeals by the Surgeon General and the President of the AMA at the time to leave it legal because there weren't that many pain medications available, it was banned. So, of course, as any economist will tell you, within a very short period of time, that became the number one uh, substance to which opioid addicts were addicted to because what would you rather sell on a black market, something that's totally banned or something that there's other ways to get? Um, so heroin is about uh, three times more potent than morphine. And methadone, which we give people uh, on methadone maintenance, a form of harm reduction, which we'll get into later, is also two and a half to three times more potent than morphine. Dilaudid, which is legal and we give to patients for whom morphine's not working, is three to four times more potent than heroin. And fentanyl, also legal, is 50 times more potent than heroin. I, I'm sorry, 50 times more potent than morphine. And of course, uh, now this new thing we're hearing about, which is not prescribed by doctors, sometimes by veterinarians treating elephants, carfentanil is a thousand times more potent than fentanyl. Uh, the main problem we have with overdose is due, there are several receptors in the central nervous system for opioids. The most 
prominent, the ones we know most about, what they call the mu receptors from the Greek letter mu, they use that because for morphine. And uh, there's one receptor that is primarily deals with the respiratory center uh, in addition to pain and euphoria. The other receptor, the mu1, deals more with the pain and euphoria. The problem is that uh, tolerance to the mu1 receptor, which is analgesia and euphoria, develops more rapidly than tolerance to the uh, respiratory receptor, the mu2 receptor. So sometimes as people take larger and larger doses to get pain relief, they could suppress their respiratory center, and that's where you die of an overdose from stopping breathing. Now, another uh, commonly held misconception, we've all heard this, you take one hit of heroin and you're hooked. That's absolutely not true. If it is, then why isn't the same the case with morphine or Dilaudid or any other opioids we give people? In fact, as, as, uh, as early as the 1960s, studies done in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, and in the Journal of Psychotherapy, International Journal of Group Psychotherapy, identified different categories of heroin users who were true recreational users. They used them on occasion, on weekends. They had productive lives. Uh, some of them were addicted uh, and were able to accommodate their addiction to a productive life, but there were many who were not addicted, just occasional users. A uh, very famous morphine addict was the father of modern surgery in America, William Halstead. He was a professor at Johns Hopkins Medical School, and he invented the residency program. Uh, it was kept a secret except to his closest friends, but he spent about the last 20 years of his life a morphine addict. He would obviously just take enough in the morning to prevent withdrawal symptoms, go be a wizard at, in, the, in the operating room and as a teacher, and then come home at night and take some more. And that was written about after he passed away. So these notions that uh, one hit of heroin and all of a sudden you're hooked, that, that's a myth. It's also important because we hear the words addiction and physical dependence used interchangeably. And even when researchers are digging into this stuff, they use the words interchangeably. And there is a difference, even on a molecular level. In fact, the recent article in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, by Professor uh, Valkow in the psychiatry department points out that uh, on, the, on the molecular level, physical dependence is when you, you actually obviously develop withdrawal symptoms You've developed tolerance and you would develop withdrawal symptoms when it's taken away, so you need to be tapered off, as opposed to addiction, which is a behavioral disorder where you actually seek the drug. You, you actually make major sacrifices in your lifestyle that have negative consequences for yourself because you want to, you, it's so important to you to take the drug. Anybody seen the, the film recently about the story of Chet Baker, uh, Born to be Blue? Here's a perfect example of a person whose entire social life was ruined. He went through two marriages. He even went into self-exile in Amsterdam where nobody bothered him about his heroin addict just so he can keep using his heroin. So that, that's an addiction. That's a lot different than physical dependence. I wouldn't be surprised, for example, if Congressman Scalise, when he gets released from the hospital after sustaining the kind of injury he did, is going to probably have a physical dependence on opioids because he's going to need opioids. I'm sure he's receiving them. But that's not the same as addiction. So most of our patients, I'm a surgeon, uh, who come to the office uh, uh, dependent, they want to be off of it, and we help them slowly taper off and get off of it. An addict, on the other hand, doesn't want to be off of it, which is why you have a high recidivism, recidivism rate when you're treating drug addicts. Also, what happens is a lot of addicts who are detoxed or released from prison where they were detoxed, they have a high overdose rate because they're addicts, so they remember the last dose they needed when they were tolerant. 
and they use that dose when they get back out and get access to heroin, and that, but their tolerance has gone away, so now they go, they overdose. Um, so, but it's important because we tend to use those words interchangeably, and they shouldn't be. They're two different problems. Now, here's some more facts. As you probably know, the National Survey on Drug, uh, drug Use and Health has found that uh, um, opioid, uh, the non-medical use of, of uh, prescription opioids, such as oxycodone and hydrocodone, actually peaked in 2012. And total opioid use was actually still lower in 2014 than in 2012. Despite that, opioid overdose deaths has increased. Um, as we know, the most recent numbers uh, that we just had made available to us are 33,000 deaths. The last that was in 2015's numbers. Now, an overwhelming majority of those deaths, however, uh, are uh, people who have used mixed mixtures of drugs. In fact, uh, New York City keeps really good numbers on this. And in 2013, they found that 94% of the people who died from heroin or other opioids had mixed drugs in their system multiple users. These were not necessarily chronic pain patients. And also, as you probably have uh, read, in this, this year's statistics of the 33,000 opioid overdose deaths, for the first time, the opioid overdose the deaths went up due to heroin. And for the first time, more people died from heroin overdoses than from prescription opioid overdoses. And in fact, 4,000 of those deaths were from fentanyl as opposed to 1,900 of those deaths in 2014, a year before. Um, an interview with uh, Professor uh, Chinezo Cunningham at Albert Einstein College of Medicine who helped develop the 2016 CDC guidelines. Uh, in, in an interview, he said, what's happening now is the number of prescription opioid overdoses is actually stabilizing, uh, but opioid overdose rates have not plateaued because heroin use is dramatically increasing. So, Heroin overdoses are actually eclipsing opioid overdoses. Okay, and then, so that that's important to understand that the number the, the big the big cause of our overdose problems now is heroin. Uh, what uh, studies uh, excellent studies in, in the JAMA's uh, JAMA Psychiatry recently in 2014 and 2017, two different studies found number one a lot of the uh, younger heroin users started off by using using illicitly obtained prescription opioids and then moved on to heroin. Older heroin users, that's not their history because they just went right to heroin. Um, and uh, they we're also seeing, of course, that uh, um, uh, it's, we're seeing heroin use much more prevalent now in people in upper socioeconomic groups and suburban and uh, among suburban people and rural white individuals is a population change. But according to the National Survey on uh, Drug Use and Health, it's important to understand only a quarter of people who take opioids for non-medical reasons, get them by obtaining a prescription. So the uh, sequence that, very, that, that everybody thinks exists, I, I just heard it mentioned on the news this morning, that a patient uh, gets narcotics for pain, gets hooked, and then eventually dies from an overdose, is not your typical story. Um, and in fact, a, a 2014 JAMA study of uh, 136,000 patients treated for opioid overdose in the emergency room found that just 13% of them or chronic pain patients. In fact, another CDC cites a study showing that uh, the opioid-related overdose rate for people who are on chronic pain medicine under the guidance of a doctor is 0.2% overdose rate. Um, new addictions to uh, people who take opioids for pain 
in, in general actually are pretty rare. Uh, Cochrane Review in 2010 found that the addiction rate of people put on prescription opioids was about 1%. Another study from the University of New Mexico, a meta-analysis done in 2014, uh, rated that between 8 and 12%. But the, the, important thing is this the important thing to understand is that it's not like doctors are prescribing a painkiller for a patient in pain who then gets hooked and becomes a, a heroin addict. That's not the usual way. Um, the, both the CDC and the Texas A&M School of Pharmacy reported that what they're seeing, however, is that as pain patients who are physically dependent and are in pain are seeing themselves gradually cut off of pain medicine by their doctors who are concerned that they're getting pressured to stop prescribing, a lot of them are seeking pain medicine through the illicit drug market. And of course, when they go to the illicit drug market, um, they oftentimes buy uh, counterfeit opioids, oxycodone, Percocet. You don't know what's in it. You don't know what it's laced with. Oftentimes it's laced with fentanyl. But what's also starting to happen is a lot of them are buying uh, heroin because heroin is, according, at least according to the CDC, is about one-fifth the price of street obtainable uh, prescription opioids. So uh, another thing that's happening that's driving this is the promotion of tamper-resistant Opioids. The FDA is encouraging that, so pharmaceutical companies have been developing over the years drugs that are meant to be tamper-proof. In other words, you can't use them for anything other than the medicinal use for which it was prescribed. Well, first of all, it's important to keep, uh, it's important to keep in mind that a person getting a pain medication for pain by a doctor is not interested in crushing it and snorting it. He's interested in taking the pain medicine because the doctor recommended it for his pain. So this is only designed to try to punish or deter abusers. Now, it's interesting. Mark Twain you know, is famous for saying that history may not repeat itself, but it rhymes. Uh, many people may be aware that back during the days of alcohol prohibition, uh, the ethanol was still allowed to be produced for industrial use. And, um, but the government required that the manufacturers put they call it denatured alcohol. They put ingredients in there, impurities in there that would make it unpalatable so that bootleggers couldn't steal vats of ethanol and sell it, you know, on a black market. But bootleggers are pretty resourceful people, and they soon found out to distill that, those impurities out, and they still sold it. So back in, in 1926, the government actually required uh, the industrial ethanol manufacturers to put methyl alcohol or methanol in it, also called wood alcohol, which you might have heard could make you blind when you drink it. That's where the expression drinking himself blind comes from. And put it, so they put methyl alcohol and benzene in it, among other things. And that, despite attempts, could not be uh, distilled out. So there are documented at least 10,000 deaths since 1926 from people who were drinking bootlegged alcohol that contained methanol and benzene. Um, that was the alcohol prohibition era's version of tamper-proof alcohol and it resulted in unintended consequences, which was death. I'm sure nobody wanted to see people die. Well, the same thing's happening today with tamper-proof drugs. Um, it, uh, people are figuring out how to, uh, if, for example, if they made OxyContin in 2010. OxyContin was converted to a tamper-proof type. So what would happen is people, if they couldn't crush it anymore to, to snort it, they would figure out ways to boil it and make it into an injectable form and then inject it. A study published in the Canadian uh, Medical Journal 
2015 found that, quote, in Ontario and the U.S., overall rates of opioid-related deaths have continued to rise since the uh, long-acting formulation of oxycodone, oxycontin, was replaced with a tamper-resistant formulation. Rather, there's increasing evidence that individuals shift to other opioids, including heroin. And of course, that's what ends up happening is uh, if it's too complicated to try to get around the tamper resistance aspect of it, if it's too much work, uh, just buy heroin. It's easier. It gets you what you want, and it's a lot cheaper. Um, in JAMA Psychiatry in 2015, uh, Cicero and Ellis found that uh, non-medical users of OxyContin switched to other opioids or to heroin after the tamper-proof reformulation of OxyContin replaced regular OxyContin in 2010. And of course, uh, very recently, just a few weeks ago, uh, the FDA totally banned Opana-ER. Opana is the brand name for oxymorphone, stronger than oxycodone, and it's a long-acting. Uh, it used to be very popular when it was obtained on the black market to crush it and snort it. They made it where it was not crushable. So a lot of people figured out how to boil it and inject it. And then there was this outbreak of HIV, particularly reported in the Indianapolis area, from people sharing dirty needles to inject the Opana ER. So all of these tamper resistance things are actually, I understand what they're trying to do, but they're actually creating a lot of the problems that exist. Another thing that's being done uh, to try to deal with, with the opioid situation is states now, all but one state, Missouri, have adopted PDMPs or, or prescription drug monitoring programs. And what these programs do is they give us doctors a report card every, in our case in Arizona, every quarter, and you kind of you see where you stand with respect to all of your colleagues in your specialty as to how many prescriptions you wrote for oxycodone, hydrocodone, et cetera. Uh, interestingly, it's not broken down by how many patients you saw, just how many prescriptions you wrote. Um, but it's uh, uh, it ranks you, and there's, there's ranges from normal to outlier to extreme outlier. Uh, in, in some states, in Arizona starting in October, we're not going to be able to prescribe opioids for patients, uh, except in certain circumstances, like immediately in the hospital or in the, in the recovery room, uh, unless we consult that database on that patient to see what they're, whether or not they've gone to multiple pharmacies, et cetera. Well, what that ends up doing is that, that casts a chilling effect on us doctors. Nobody wants to be seen as an outlier believe me, because you don't know where that's going to lead. So it's pressured indirectly a lot of doctors to actually cut back on prescribing. And then a lot of the legitimately suffering patients of pain are driven to the illegal market where they get either laced opioids or they go to cheaper heroin. And of course, that's where the overdoses occur. A study just came out in May uh, from uh, University of Pennsylvania, Penn State, that examined the effect of PDMPs going back from 1999 to 2014, and they found, uh, I'll just give you the conclusion, which is PDMPs were not associated with reductions in drug overdose mortality rates and may be related to increased mortality from illicit and other unspecified drugs because it's probably sending people to the black market. All right, so what can we do from a policy standpoint? I'm a big advocate of what's called harm reduction. That's an approach to... Uh, the drug problem where it, I consider it very realistic. If, you, if you're going to not be able to stop all sorts of people from using these things, at least let's try to make, do what we can to make sure they don't kill themselves and harm themselves. Uh, an example of harm reduction is methadone maintenance, which has been around for decades. 
where you, you're basically replacing an addiction to heroin with an addiction to methadone in the form of a pill that when it gets absorbed from the gut, it prevents withdrawal, but it doesn't uh, give you the euphoria. And it's sort of like, you know, uh, an opioid version of a nic nicotine patch, a nicotine patch, a nicotine gum. Um, so that's one method. Another thing that's being used uh, very in, in several countries, and that I think here in Washington, we require work from Washington to make it happen, is, this may sound weird, heroin maintenance programs. Now remember, heroin is diamorphine, which is a pharmaceutical that is available and used in many developed countries. In Switzerland in 1994, they started a heroin maintenance program. There's a criteria to be in it. They have to make sure you're not going to be trying to game the system, but you declare yourself a heroin addict. You come into a clinic in the morning. You're given pharmaceutical-grade diamorphine with a clean needle and syringe. A nurse is there watching you. You inject yourself, and then you leave. And you sign in, and you sign out. This has been in effect since 1994. They even had a referendum in Switzerland about five years ago about whether or not to continue it, and the voters voted to continue it. Um, I can't give you the exact data on it, but I, I can tell you that what they found is a significant number of people, once they do this, they're not spending their whole day looking for their connection. A lot of them, they get a job. Some get married and have a family. Um, as they uh, resume a more conventional lifestyle, a significant number of them actually detox themselves off. Uh, there also is a smaller program like that in the UK that's been going on for about 10 years. And in uh, Vancouver, British Columbia, there was one that just, I think it just began in December. So I, I think something, now to have something like that happen in this country obviously require legislation because this is a banned substance, but something that we could look at uh, in Washington is making it possible, for example, for some heroin maintenance pilot programs to be, be, to, to be started. Again, this is harm reduction. And another thing uh, that I could argue uh, for harm reduction on, on the clinician standpoint is instead of pressuring us doctors through things like these prescription drug monitoring boards to decrease the amount of prescriptions we give to our patients, why don't you just let us be doctors? I mean, that's our job. So when I have a patient who has recovered from a major trauma surgery and I know he's physically dependent, he's asking me for another refill of oxycodone, and I think this has kind of been going on a little longer than it should be, what I do ethically as part of my profession is I have a discussion with my patient and I see if I can't get the patient to go along with me tapering him off. And, uh, and, and sometimes they're in denial. Uh, or if they're addicted, I could refer them to somebody who has more expertise in treating addiction and if they're agreeable, I'll refer them. But if I'm faced with a, with a decision of should I give this guy another prescription that'll under the condition that he returns to see me in two weeks so we can talk about this again or should I just cut him off and risk that he'll go get some counterfeit Percocet through some people he knows and maybe die of an overdose because there was fentanyl or carfentanyl in it? I think you should leave that judgment call to me, the doctor. See, in my case, that'll be like a harm. If we could be, keep people on methadone maintenance, why can't I decide under close supervision to keep a person on oxycodone maintenance? There's no difference chemically. Um, and so, my advice would be to stop interfering in the patient-doctor relationship. You're actually making it worse. In summary, I think it's pretty obvious that our opioid overdose problem is not a product of the patient-doctor relationship. It's a product of drug prohibition because it's the illegal market that has led to all these impurities and to people getting substances that kill people. So if you, we need to address the... Uh, drug prohibition. 
uh, not the patient-doctor relationship. Thank you. How's it going? This is a very wide room, like 180 degrees of neck turning. So if I don't look at you, I apologize. You'll live. Uh, so as Peter mentioned in the intro, uh, I'm not a medical doctor. I uh, am a lawyer, and I do criminal justice and civil liberties policy uh, at the Cato Institute. So I thought Dr. Singer gave a great overview of um, somebody with a, a, a surgeon and a doctor's expertise on this issue. Um, I, I approach this issue from a criminal justice perspective. So uh, it was nice of Dr. Singer to segue into uh, my main thesis, which is that the, the, the vast majority of the harm that we identify as part of drug harm is actually a byproduct of drug prohibition, not the drugs themselves. Uh, our current Attorney General, Jeff Sessions, likes to say, in fact, he wrote an op-ed that led with this uh, last week, uh, that we have to continue the drug war because drug trafficking is an inherently violent activity. The reason he thinks that it's inherently violent is because participants in the black market for drugs cannot avail themselves of the court system uh, and have to rely on violent means of dispute resolution rather than going to court. Uh, I always think this is kind of funny because I thought that was my argument. <laughs> uh, he's right, drug, markets, uh, drug market participants can't go to court to settle their disputes. But there's nothing inherent about that. That's not true because they're trafficking in heroin. It's true because trafficking in heroin is illegal. Uh, I like to say that in 2017, if two alcohol distributors have a dispute, they go to court and settle it peacefully. In 1929, when two alcohol distributors had a dispute, they settled it on the street corner with Tommy guns and Molotov cocktails. We know this. We've, it is funny, but it's not funny. The, the not funny part of this is that we've been down this road before. We know this is true. We know that this violence and this crime and the adulterants and the, the increasing danger of using these drugs is a byproduct of prohibition because this is exactly what we did with alcohol. And despite the fact uh, that there are around 90,000 alcohol-related deaths every year in the United States, and many people have a moral inhibition about alcohol, uh, there's no movement to re-prohibit alcohol. We've already been there, and we already figured out that that doesn't work, and that just throwing people in cages for consuming or manufacturing or distributing alcohol uh, is not a good policy solution. It's not a moral policy solution. It's not a logical policy solution, and it does not reduce harm, to echo Dr. Singer's point. So was that violence and alcohol trafficking? Uh, was that inherent? Of course it wasn't. If you went to the executives of Anheuser-Busch today and told them that they were engaged in an inherently violent activity, uh, I, I presume they would laugh in your face. Uh, and what happened to those alcohol cartels? The alcohol cartels that took over American cities in the 20s and 30s, where did they go? Uh, aside from some swamps uh, out in various flyover parts of the country where my people are from, uh, the, this alcohol uh, booze cartel, uh, private manufacturer of illegal alcohol, basically doesn't exist. Uh, and the reason it doesn't exist is because you can go to the supermarket and buy alcohol. And there is no way for those illegal black market distributors and manufacturers to compete with actual legal distribution of alcohol. The United States has spent more than a trillion dollars on drug intervention efforts uh, in the history of the war on drugs. That's currently we spend about $51 billion a year uh, in drug intervention alone. 
Mexico has become a legitimate war zone in its war on drugs. Uh, since that began in 2006, uh, conservative estimates are that roughly 80,000 people have died in Mexico's war uh, for drug prohibition. Those people didn't have to die. And this, the point of this is this is not just an America problem. We, we talk about 33,000 deaths from opioid overdoses, and of course that's a tragedy. Uh, but the numbers from other countries that are directly impacted by U.S. drug policy dwarf those figures. It's 80,000 in Mexico at a conservative estimate. Uh, this black market funnels billions of dollars into the hands of violent, brutal drug cartels and terrorist organizations around the world. These facts are not in dispute. I, I don't think there's a, there's a counter argument to what I've said. The counter argument comes when it's time to think of what we should do about this. This is not unavoidable. As I said, this is a tragedy, but it's not inherent. This was not something that nobody could have foreseen. This is not something that we just have to throw our hands up and deal with. It is the direct result of policy, of conscious policy decisions, not intentional policy decisions. I, I don't th nobody would say that the, the, where we're at now is the result of, of lawmakers deciding that this is what they want the world to look like, but it is the direct byproduct of policy decisions that, that they have made. Uh, and so what we have to start doing before we fix this is to start challenging some of these deeply held yet unsupportable premises uh, about the efficacy and the morality of prohibition. And I thought Dr. Singer already did a great job of challenging some of the deeply held myths about what it means to use heroin or to use opioids. Uh, but there are policy myths as well. I like to say in criminal justice talks on various topics that the criminal justice system is a hammer. The criminal justice system is how the state wields violence uh, when people don't comply with, with the law. I, in this case, I'll say it's a hammer and not a scalpel. It's, sorry to make Jeff's surgeon joke for him. But, uh, so the impact of the drug war on policing has been to take a hammer to the Constitution, uh, not just to the constitutional rights of all Americans, but especially to Americans in our most vulnerable communities. The incentives of drug, pro of drug prohibition have filled our jails with nonviolent offenders, they've militarized our police forces, and they've turned ideas like due process, probable cause, and the legitimate use of force into punchlines. And just like in the 1920s, this has not made drug use better. This has not been better for people who use drugs, and it hasn't been better for people who don't use drugs. Drug use is more dangerous today uh, than it would have been had, if drugs were legal and in an overseen, regulated market. And I think Jeff, Jeff adequately explained the reasons uh, why that's true. Why, when you go to the store and buy alcohol, those of you that do in this town, that's everyone, uh, you're not worried about what's in it. You're not worried that it's been laced with adulterants. You're not worried that the dosage isn't what it says on the bottle. You don't even think about these things. Uh, and the reason you don't think about them is because we have a legal, regulated market. It's not some guy who looks like me making it in his bathtub and saying, hey, come get it. <laughs> so the stigma of illegal drug use and the collateral consequences of drug convictions are immense, and they destroy lives. They destroy far more lives than the drugs themselves destroy. Uh, if you have a felony record, which anybody caught with heroin uh, in basically any jurisdiction ends up with a felony record, uh, you can never vote again. You, you lose your right to vote. You lose your right to own a gun. You, you may lose eligibility for student loans. You may not be able to get a job. Those are just the direct policy consequences of having a felony conviction and of treating drugs as a felony offense. Uh, there's also the stigma. 
people are afraid to be seen as criminals. Uh, people are afraid to admit that they commit crimes. That means, in this context, that people are afraid to seek help. They're afraid to tell their doctor that they're an illegal drug user and engaging in felony behavior. Uh, they're afraid to go seek counseling. Uh, they're even afraid to call police in times when they think they may have overdosed or someone near them may have overdosed for fear of being arrested and triggering all of those collateral consequences. Now, some states have passed Good Samaritan laws, which is nice, and I've, there's a uh, research brief out on the table about some preliminary results from states that have passed uh, laws allowing access to Narcan or Naloxone or things that can reverse the effects of a heroin overdose immediately. Uh, but even there, that's requiring somebody to have enough faith in the system to call the police. And even if the police agree not to arrest you, they promise, if you call us, we're not gonna arrest you, they still know who you are. Uh, they still know that you're an illicit drug user. There's still an implicit threat uh, of future law enforcement activity, even if, uh, even if it's not gonna happen today. And again, this, is not, this has nothing to do with drug use. This is not inherent in drug use. The, these are policy responses to drug use. In a legal market, pe the, people could go and buy the antidote over the counter. They wouldn't have to tell their doctor that they're addicted to heroin. They wouldn't have to risk a felony conviction, and they wouldn't need to call the police uh, every time they thought there, there might be a problem. I even saw a story uh, yesterday I think it was in Ohio that lawmakers are con considering a policy to pass a, a so-called three strikes in your outlaw when it comes to Narcan access, which basically says that if you've already called to report three overdoses and the police have already been dispatched three times, the fourth time you're out of luck. We're not gonna keep doing this. Um, obviously, access to Narcan is great. It's a miracle that this drug exists and can uh, reverse uh, a potentially deadly situation. But when we create a policy of, if you, if you need this antidote four times, we're just gonna let you die, as opposed to letting you just go to the store and buy it, uh, I think it's time to start questioning our fundamental premises of what we're trying to do here. Uh, I'll also bring up in the, in the stigma, uh, it's not just the stigma of the user, it's the stigma of society. I, I'm sure many of you followed the uh, Philando Castile shooting uh, by the police and the, the recent acquittal of the officer who shot him. But one of the things that officer said in his testimony was one of the reasons he was afraid and he thought he was dealing with a dangerous person was because he smelled marijuana. He said that once he smelled marijuana and saw that there was a kid in the car, he thought in his head that anybody who would use uh, illegal drugs in the presence of a child, well, that person's capable of anything. And so I had to be ready because this, this just became a threatening situation because I smelled marijuana. I think it's worth asking whether that would have been the response of any person if he had smelled tobacco smoke or if he had smelled alcohol, which are also dangerous to children and should not, can't responsibly be used in the presence of children, uh, but it doesn't get people killed. That, that stigma of illegality and criminality and this idea that anybody engaged in this behavior is inherently dangerous and inherently violent, uh, that leads to, to people being killed in ways that we don't tally. Philando Castile doesn't show up uh, on the stats for drug prohibition deaths, uh, but if you listen to the person who killed him, I think maybe he should. I also think we can look at the lessons of other countries. Uh, in Portugal, in 2001, they decriminalized all drugs, all drugs across the board. It was decriminalization, not legalization, so it was not just a completely legal market. You still, uh, the, pro, uh, the manufacture and distribution was still illegal, but if you were caught with these drugs, 
uh, you basically you receive the equivalent of a notice to appear for a parking ticket. Uh, and at, at that point, you, you may be diverted into a treatment program. You may, the vast majority of these sentences were just suspended. So actually nothing happened to you. You just were basically told not to do it again. Uh, and I always like to warn against cross-country comparisons because there are a lot of factors in our drug war that don't always uh, compare well with other countries. But uh, I think the biggest thing to take from the Portugal experiment is that a, nobody is trying to go back the other direction, which again is what the same thing I said earlier about alcohol prohibition. There's no movement to recriminalize all of these drugs. Uh, and the, the, the most dire predictions of the opponents of decriminalization simply didn't happen. Uh, Portugal did not become the hotspot drug tourism destination of Europe. Uh, something like 96% of their uh, citations for drug use are native Portuguese, not tourists. Uh, and the prediction that uh, use would skyrocket, especially among young people, simply didn't happen. Uh, in fact, uh, people below the age of 21, their use of all drugs across the board actually decreased uh, in the, we ran a study on this in 2009. Uh, so between 2001 and 2009, the youth use of these drugs in Portugal actually decreased. Uh, there were slight upticks in, pe in people in their 20s, but those slight upticks were nothing like the spike uh, and the just rampant, what we call, unfortunately, an epidemic that, that just didn't take place in Portugal. So uh, there's little reason to believe, I think, that, that one of the arguments against taking a softer line or taking this away from the hands of the criminal justice system is the idea that all of a sudden people will feel empowered to do drugs. And a lot of people who don't currently use these drugs will start using them. Uh, but that's just not what the data shows from countries that have uh, effectively taken this uh, regulation of drugs out of the hands of the criminal justice system. So I just want to be clear, this is not inherent. This, this tragedy is not a fact of life, and we're not helpless in the face of it. It's a policy problem. It's a policy problem that we've created and that we can correct. Uh, I don't anticipate a full legalization effort uh, out of this town anytime soon, uh, so some things I do think uh, should be seriously considered. Uh, First, I think the federal government should simply relent uh, when it comes to the war on drugs. Uh, that includes the militarization of state and local police, that includes uh, drug trafficking grants that twist the priorities of state and local law enforcement, uh, and it includes uh, to, to peel back from states that have decided they want to take a different approach. Uh, nine states have legalized medicinal or recreational marijuana, uh, there's interesting data coming out. Uh, I haven't gone through all of it, but that suggests that in those states, the opioid crisis, whatever you want to call it, has actually uh, been nulled, uh, perhaps because uh, people who have easy access to marijuana don't feel compelled to go for harder drugs. Uh, what we shouldn't do is this approach where what we see, it, we decide that this is a tragedy and that something has to be done, that the status quo isn't good enough, uh, and so we have two choices. We can, we can relent, we can take a different approach that focuses on making drug use safer uh, and the drug market safer and less violent, or we can look at this and say we need to just take everything we've done so far and we need to do it harder. Uh, this kind of once more with feeling attitude that, that we need to be more interventionist. We need to do more to shut down the supply. We need to do more to intervene in places like Afghanistan uh, and Central and South America. Uh, I think that's the wrong approach. I think because 
these pro our problems with prohibition and not with drug use itself, that approach will only make this problem worse. Uh, and again, there's nothing inherent about that. that that's a policy decision that will come from, from lawmakers. Uh, so thanks, and with that, I'm, well, I think we're happy to take any questions you guys have.